0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, the producer of this podcast and your host for this special episode. On Monday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases challenging Texas's ban on abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, known as SB-8. One case, brought by the ACLU and our partner organizations on behalf of abortion providers— called Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, and a separate case brought by the Department of Justice called United States versus Texas. The rulings will determine whether or not abortion providers and the DOJ are entitled to challenge SB8, as the law was written purposely to skirt judicial review. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court declined to rule on an emergency request to block SB8, allowing the ban to take effect on September 1st. Since then, the majority of Texans seeking abortions have been unable to access them in the state. What does this all mean for the future of SB 8 and abortion access in the U.S. at large? That remains to be seen. There are so many unanswered questions. While abortion lawyers were inside at the Supreme Court, we had the opportunity to catch up with protesters who were attending a rally right outside. There, they shared their stories.
1: Hey, I need us,
2: The abortion diva, and
0: yes, I do refer to myself as the abortion diva because I am loud, I am
2: proud, I own, I have accepted the fact that I have had quite a few abortions, and I am not ashamed
0: anymore. So there was the point time that I did. So being an abortion diva for me means that I feel empowered, that I had choice. This is Kenya Martin. Kenya is a Texan woman who works with We Testify, an organization focused on abortion storytelling. My abortions saved my life. My abortion provider saved my life. Every single time that he provided me with that care. Kenya shared her story with the crowd outside of the Supreme Court building. We caught up with her after. When I was having my abortions, I didn't really think much of it. You know, I thought that I was just doing what I was supposed to do as someone who wasn't ready to parent. And it was just something we didn't talk about, you know. Um, But for some reason, I did feel a little shame and embarrassment that I may have been perceived as being irresponsible or careless um, and not thinking that I was just doing what was best for me. Shame is also what MJ Flores first felt when she had an abortion. That's why abortion storytelling is so important because it reminds people that they are not alone.
1: When I had my abortion, I didn't know anyone else who had had one. Because of the stigma, it silences people, it silenced me. I was able to tell a few people, and I'm so thankful that they were able and willing to listen to me and support me through my journey. In reality,
0: MJ's abortion gave her freedom and opportunity. It allowed for a long list of positive changes to unfold in her life.
1: I had plans to take on another job, I had plans to take courses to go to grad school. Before I had taken that pregnancy test, the three pregnancy tests, because I didn't believe after the first one that I was pregnant, I was thinking, what would I do if I were to carry this pregnancy to term, if I were indeed pregnant? I would have given up the job, I would have moved back home. I don't know if I would have gone to grad school or when I would have gone to grad school. would have affected my complete future my economic financial ability and also the fact that in these years since then i have contributed to my community doing public service work here in dc back home in texas and i wouldn't have been able to do any of that to contribute to my community if i didn't have my abortion and now i'm excited i am engaged i am trying to get married despite the pandemic And looking forward to having a child with someone I love who I know is going to be an amazing partner. And I don't know if any of that would have happened if I didn't have my abortion.
0: MJ can't imagine what she would have done if the SB8 abortion ban were in effect when she got pregnant.
1: It seems that every year, every other year, Texas decides to be in the news to restrict abortion access. And every time that happens, I am taken back in time and I think about, when i had my unintended pregnancy if if i were to have that same situation happen now i would have been completely lost and i feel imprisoned in my body because i know that the state which is committing this violence against me and my body doesn't want me to access an abortion and so it makes me frightened because i'm still of childbearing age i could have a pregnancy that I don't want to have in the future, pregnancy that goes wrong, something. And I may need an abortion. I may be living in Texas. But there are people right now in Texas who are having pregnancies that they don't want to have. The pregnancies are going wrong. And they just need to seek an abortion, and they can't. They have to leave the state. People should be able to live in their homes and know that they can control their body and their futures.
0: At the ACLU... We agree, and that's why we are fighting so hard against forced pregnancy. The oral arguments heard before the Supreme Court were wonky, steeped in procedural law. But to us, at the end of the day, the fight is still about protecting the constitutional right to access an abortion. Bridget Amiri, Deputy Director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, joined us right after the arguments ended, to help us make sense of what happened. So, Bridget, these two cases that the Supreme Court just heard were very focused on procedural law. The word abortion was actually rarely even said in the arguments. Why is it so important that we keep the focus on abortion and abortion
2: stories? That's absolutely where the focus should be, is on the impact that this horrible law is having. It's wreaking havoc in the state of Texas, um, forcing many people to flee the state in order to get the care that they need or if they're not able to do that because financially they can't or logistically they can't, uh, they're forced to continue their pregnancies. That's what this case is about, is blocking that horrible law. And we often know that procedure in law translates into substance. Uh, These are procedural hurdles that we need to get over to get the law blocked. But being able to clear these procedural hurdles means we get to move forward and block the law.
0: So I wanna take us back a little bit to, you know, the beginning of September when SB8 went into effect. Can you just give us a little bit of a timeline of what has happened since then for people who might not be as read into SB8's trajectory?
2: So SB8 bans abortion at approximately six weeks in pregnancy. But rather than have the government enforce the law, the state of Texas decided that anyone in the country— could bring a lawsuit against someone who violates SB 8 and seek at least $10,000 in damages and an injunction to prevent future violations of the law. So that means an abortion provider who provides one abortion could get sued for at least $10,000 and get a court order saying that they are prohibited from violating SB 8 in the future. And on top of that, if the other side is victorious then the abortion provider and the abortion provider's attorney has to pay the other side's legal costs. So we tried to block the law before it took effect on September 1. We filed our lawsuit uh, well in advance of that effective date, and we were gearing up towards an argument in the district court to block the law. And we won in the district court, but then the other side quickly appealed that to the Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit ruled in their favor so then we had to go very quickly to the Supreme Court and try to get that bad decision undone and get the law blocked before it took effect September 1st. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court didn't agree with us on September 1st and allowed the law to take effect. And also their decision meant that our case was a bit held in limbo, I would say, Uh, We were going to have to proceed in the Fifth Circuit, but that was taking too long. And we knew that that would just take too long. So we then asked the Supreme Court to take review of the case to address these procedural questions on the merits before the Fifth Circuit could even rule. So we filed what was called a a petition for certiorari before judgment. So again, more (laughs) more nerdy stuff. And so much to our surprise, but also... Happiness, the Supreme Court did take um, this case and argument was heard today. And just for
0: context, for those listening, we are recording just an hour after both of the arguments wrapped up. But I wanted to touch back on the speed with which the Supreme Court decided to hear these cases. What did you make of that
2: kind of urgency? Yes. Um, So everything about this case is unusual. Never have we seen a law like this in the abortion context or any context that allows private individuals to sue for a bounty for the violation of a constitutional right. And so this was an unusual law that has chilled the exercise of constitutional rights in the state of Texas by prohibiting access to abortion after approximately six weeks in pregnancy. And I think some of the justices at least realized the devastating impact that the law was having and agreed to hear the case very quickly. We really had 10 days between the time the court took the case and argument, and we had briefs due in between there. So it's been a very hectic 10 days, I would say, for the legal team. And I don't know of any other case that has moved this quickly in the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, it's a wild thing to witness. So Justice Sotomayor actually said that she, in the arguments, that she's never seen this kind of law before, and one that represents redress for bringing a suit in the form of a $10,000 bounty and attorney fees paid, and not a suit for bringing harm. How unusual is this law in the way that it's set up?
2: It is so unusual. We've never seen anything like that. So usually in our cases, there's a law that's passed that restricts or bans abortion, and the government enforces it either because there are criminal penalties or some sort of licensing implications for the clinic. And you sue those government officials in their official capacity for the constitutional violation, and you get the law blocked. So that's what's happened in all of our other abortion cases where we have six-week bans enjoined in Ohio and in Tennessee and in Kentucky, for example, they all have this government enforcement mechanism. Texas decided to allow everyone but the state of Texas to enforce the law by bringing lawsuits um, to enforce the law. And they get to claim, if they're successful, at least $10,000 per abortion. And they also get to seek to block the provider from providing abortions in violation again as well. And as you mentioned, the attorney's fees piece of it as well. The attorney's fees then are paid by the entity, the lawyers representing the abortion provider.
0: It feels like a lot of creativity that the other side went to construct this law. I wanted to ask you about just the question at the center of this case. What are we asking the justices to decide on?
2: Yeah. I mean, the creativity piece of it is really just, it's a very cute, very evil way of trying to avoid the Constitution. I mean, that's what's happening. That's what the state of Texas did. Some people decided that there was a way to try to evade federal court review and to try to ban abortions. And so far, they've succeeded. But I think the jig is up. I think that the questioning from the justices or the mo- most of the justices indicate that they're troubled by this deliberate attempt to insulate a blatantly unconstitutional law from federal court review. And so that's the question, really, that was being considered today, is can a state pass an unconstitutional law and say that the federal courts don't have a role in adjudicating whether it's constitutional, particularly before the law takes effect? And that can't be. And I think that a lot of the justices agreed that that was problematic.
0: To your point, I want to get your take on something that Justice Kagan said to Judd Stone, the Texas Solicitor General. Let me play that for you now. The fact that after all these many years, some geniuses came up with a way to evade the even broader principle that states are not to nullify federal constitutional rights and to say, oh, we've never seen this before, so we can't do anything about it. I guess I just don't understand the argument. Based on my understanding, the way in which SB8 was written, there is no one that is set up to be the actor in which someone could sue. They can't sue the government because the enforcement is in the hands of private citizens.
2: This is a very tricky
0: mechanism. Have you ever seen something like this? We haven't.
2: This is really unprecedented and unusual. And so because there isn't a government official to sue, we said we need to be able to stop these lawsuits from being filed. And so the entity that we focused on primarily is the clerk of the courts. So the person who accepts a court lawsuit for filing. And we have said, you need to give us Injunctive relief to prohibit those clerks from taking SBA lawsuits, and that would remedy the harm because it would stop the filing of SBA lawsuits.
0: Wow, I mean, I think in hearing all of this and in witnessing both of the oral arguments because we'll we'll get into the other oral argument that the DOJ had today against Texas. But in listening to both of these arguments, It was so silly to me that all of this was getting stuck in procedural law when we have precedent on the books that says that this law is unconstitutional. And I wonder if you got a sense that the justices felt that some part of their authority would be weakened if they were to stop these cases from proceeding.
2: Uh, For sure, the ultimate issue of whether federal law, federal constitution, federal court decisions are supreme as they are required to be in our system of governance is in the background, in the foreground, and a real kind of fundamental existential question, I think, for some of the justices. Some of them at least realize that the state of Texas is thumbing their nose at their decisions and the supremacy of what the court does, and I think that that should be offensive to all of the justices.
0: Right. And what would stop another state from doing this with a different issue?
2: Exactly. And on that point, the solicitor in Texas was very clear that any constitutional right could be targeted in this way. And it wasn't anything unique about abortion. Take any constitutional right that you may care about, whether it's LGBT rights, gun rights, First Amendment, free expression, freedom of religion. Why couldn't you do this for any constitutional right? And the solicitor said, you could. So in response to our arguments,
0: Texas said two different things. One, that if we, you know, wanted to do something about SB8, we could have Congress do something about it. The other alternative was that abortion providers could essentially sacrifice themselves,
2: get sued, let those cases make it all the way through the system. I mean, on the first point, we are trying to get Congress to pass a law that would protect abortion rights. And the law is the Women's Health Protection Act. But it's not an either or. We have to protect the constitutional rights in the courts, and we have to push Congress to protect the right as well. We need belts and suspenders. We need every tool in the toolbox. And so it's not enough to say, oh, you can just go to Congress. We're talking about constitutional rights that the Supreme Court has the authority and must protect. So... On the second point, we, the movement, has tried to go to state court. And in fact, the Center for Reproductive Rights, their client, Dr. Braid, violated the law. There have been three lawsuits filed against him. They've been languishing. They've just been sitting there. Planned Parenthood sued Texas' right to life. Their case is also moving at a snail's pace. So this idea that somehow state courts can quickly adjudicate this important constitutional right, and that we can get relief from the state courts that would allow abortion providers to resume and restore access to abortion in Texas um, is a fantasy. Uh, It just is not going to happen fast enough. And in any event, why should we have to go to state court? We're talking about a federal constitutional right that the Supreme Court has reaffirmed for 50 years. We should be able to go to federal court and protect that right. In all of this waiting, the majority of
0: abortions are being blocked in Texas. That's right. Also,
2: anyone who has not been able to obtain an abortion in Texas has lost their constitutional right. The constitutional rights are being violated every day for every person who is unable to access their right. So the idea that somehow we can go to state courts, violate the law... Challenge the law in state courts. I think at one point the solicitor even said um, you can get to the Texas Supreme Court, but then you have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. We're talking years, years when every single day people's rights are being violated and they're denied access to abortion with devastating consequences.
0: So the second case that was heard today was the Department of Justice's case against the state of Texas. So this is when the Biden administration said, we are going to do everything we can as an administration to get involved in this issue, and we will sue. So this is the result, is this this case that is being heard. How did the two cases differ?
2: Right. So several days after the Supreme Court denied our request to block the law before it took effect on September one the Department of Justice filed its lawsuit against the state of Texas for violating the Constitution. And that right there was a watershed moment. We have never seen the federal government defend and fight to protect abortion access before. That was incredibly critical that the Department of Justice filed this lawsuit, both because they were trying to hold the state accountable for their blatant constitutional violations And the power of the federal government, seeing them protecting the right to abortion, was also just critical, and and we've never really seen it to that degree before. So I'm just so grateful that they were able to do that. And they did get relief for two days. They got a law. They got an injunction blocking the law, and abortion access was resuming, and people were allowed to get care again. And then the Fifth Circuit took that victory away, and the Supreme Court heard argument today. And the difference is that a little bit is who we can sue and the procedural obstacles in those different lawsuits are different. But the ultimate question of whether the law is constitutional or not is in both cases eventually. And the, the issues are different in the sense that the state of um, Texas um, can be sued directly by the federal government, whereas in our case, we need to sue an official of a state in order to allow our case to proceed. And those two strands of case law are different and present different questions.
0: So what are the ramifications if the Supreme Court decides that one of these cases can move forward and not the other, or vice versa? I think specifically I'm interested in what happens if the abortion providers case is halted, but the DOJ case is allowed to move forward.
2: So I think both cases should be allowed to move forward. And again, this is, you know, all hands on deck, all tools in the toolbox. And I think it's critically important that we be allowed to proceed with our case um, in addition to the Department of Justice, because what if this happens again when there is a president who is hostile to abortion rights? I keep thinking about what if this happened during the Trump administration? So it can't be that our constitutional rights can only be vindicated by the Department of Justice that will be based on who sits in the White House. That can't be the right. So the right has to be that we get to go to court and enforce our constitutional rights. So I hope both cases are allowed to proceed. And I hope ultimately that the law gets blocked as soon as possible, because as we've talked about the devastating consequences, people who are forced to flee the state if they have resources And if they don't, they're forced to continue their pregnancies. And we know that the impact is being felt the harshest on the most marginalized communities, people of color, young people, people who live in rural areas, people who can't travel out of state because of checkpoints, and they lack documentation, and they're afraid of being picked up by immigration. So all of these are concerns in terms of the impact of this law and how devastating it has been um, for these last couple of months. So Whatever the route is to get quick relief so that people don't have to suffer is what I want to see happen.
0: And is there a possibility that we could get quick relief here?
2: So, yes, I think that there is a possibility. First of all, in the Department of Justice case, they did get a preliminary injunction in the lower court, and the other side got it lifted by the Fifth Circuit, and um, the Department of Justice has asked the Supreme Court to reinstate it. The Supreme Court said that they were going to make the determination of whether to put that victory back into place after they heard argument. So that is one way. And if you could tell by some of the questions, there was also an indication that at least some justices would consider the possibility of blocking the law in our case. So I think that there are avenues, and uh, and even if the Supreme Court didn't do that in our case, um, but allowed the case to go forward. We're already teed up in the district court for a preliminary injunction, fully briefed, and so we just need the green light from the Supreme Court um, to go back to the district court and ask for the law to be blocked quickly.
0: This is perhaps a ignorant question, but typically when we have oral arguments in the fall and springtime, we have decisions that come out in June and all the way up into July. Um, Are we? hoping that we hear something earlier than that, or is there no hope for this to be blocked anytime time before then?
2: No, it's a great question, and I think we don't totally know, but I have to hope and anticipate that we will hear something soon. Given how quickly they set argument and rearranged their whole schedule, they bumped another set of arguments that were supposed to be heard today. Given how quickly they're acting, I think it would be very surprising if they did not issue a decision until June of 2022.
0: Many were hoping that today would shed some light on whether or not SCOTUS finds that the six-week abortion ban is unconstitutional, especially heading into the December 1st arguments for the Mississippi case. I don't think we heard much from the justices there, but what are your thoughts?
2: I think that's right that we didn't really get a good look into what they're thinking in terms of the overall right to abortion and where they are on that question. But I will say, I don't know that they would be so disturbed by this enforcement mechanism and this too clever by half scheme that Texas has cooked up if they didn't also appreciate that there was an underlying constitutional right at issue that's been clearly established. Um, So that's a little bit reading a couple of layers deep into the tea leaves um, and maybe not enough to actually have a real sense. But, you know, where they talk about the litany of other constitutional rights that could be impacted, implicit, hopefully, in that that is that abortion is a constitutional right and they are continuing to think of it in that way.
0: And just looking ahead, the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the Mississippi case set for argument on December 1st, what can you preview for our listeners about December 1st?
2: Yeah, so December 1st, the court is going to hear argument in a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. The law is a ban on abortions um, at 15 weeks in pregnancy out of a case coming from Mississippi. It will be argued by Julie Rickleman from the Center for Reproductive Rights, who also argued beautifully, I might add, uh, June Medical Services, um, one of the prior abortion cases from a couple of years ago. And the question the court is going to consider is whether states may ban all pre-viability abortions. That's a huge question. So where the court is going to be focused in that broad question, if there's a narrower route that they're going to take. I don't know in terms of their questions yet, but that is the big, big and broad question that is on the table. And we filed a front of the court brief. So did many other organizations. And it's really a critical, critical moment for reproductive rights.
0: Absolutely. I want to go back to what we can do. You mentioned that we are trying to pass the Women's Healthcare Protection Act in Congress. What is the best route for people to support our work there.
2: So if you go to ACLU.org, and I think it's backslash WHPA, Uh, then you can take action and let your senator know that you support um, the Women's Health Protection Act that will protect abortion rights at the federal level. And you should also find out what's going on in your state and uh, check out your local ACLU, see um, how you can get involved um, in protecting the right at the state level as well. And talk to your abortion rights, abortion health, and reproductive justice organizations in your area to see how you can get involved, how you can donate to them, how you can support that infrastructure, which is so critical to ensuring that people can get the care they need.
0: The last thing I really wanted to touch on is the fact that we are part of this broader coalition of organizations that have been doing this work and looking at this emergency that we've seen in Texas and then seeing that kind of robust response that has been established by a whole host of organizations including the ACLU what has it been like you know you mentioned there were 10 days to put together arguments for the supreme court like that's a pretty big deal what has it been like to be working alongside all of these other people towards this common goal
2: Yeah, it has been a huge and tremendous team effort, and I just can't say enough about how grateful I am to be a part of that legal team. It is a massive legal team. How many people? I think we're like 15, 20 people um, on the legal team from the Center for Reproductive Rights who argued the case today, Planned Parenthood, us, the ACLU of Texas. Uh, the Loring Project, we have a pro bono law firm, Morrison Forrester, and uh, we have been working around the clock and quite literally. So some people will take a late shift and work until one, two o'clock in the morning, hand something, hand the baton off, you know, around four o'clock in the morning. It has been relentless, um, I would say, in terms of the the legal team But I also fully recognize that is nothing compared to what people are suffering from on the ground. And we are honored to do this work and will happily give up. Well, maybe not happily, but we will definitely give up some sleep to try to protect the right because of what it means to people. People who are forced to flee the state, people who are forced to continue their pregnancies to term that is where the heartbreak is. And all of the organizations on the ground that are supporting everybody to do everything they can to get abortion in Texas if they are under six weeks, um, or get them out of state if they're over six weeks, they are heroes as well. So the abortion funds, the practical support organizations, the clinics, clinic staff, and all of this is so emotionally draining, physically draining. It is just been so tough for everyone in Texas for the last couple of months. And I am so grateful and honored to be a small part of this.
0: Well, we really appreciate your work, Bridget. Thank you so much for all that you do and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Kenya, MJ, and Bridget for sharing their stories and expertise with us. And thanks so much to you for listening. If you'd like to support our fight against forced pregnancy, you can donate by visiting aclu.org access. We really appreciate the support. Until next week, stay strong.